following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church in Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. Those of you who don't know me, my name is John, and uh, I, um, I'm a part of the church staff as well, and it's a great privilege, what an honor it is to be a part of this church staff, and to share some time with you this morning speaking from the scriptures. It's a tremendous, tremendous honor. Before I start, though, I would like to express a disappointment, um, and I suppose if you're a guest today, then this doesn't apply to you. Well, for sure it does. It doesn't apply to you at all if you're a guest. But if you've been a part of the church for, let's say, uh, the last year or so, then you know about this thing that we call the 20-minute mornings. And currently, we, we took a poll of all of you over the last month or so, and we found that 30% of our congregation is actively doing the 20-minute mornings. Now, that's a huge disappointment to me because at one point we were 80%. 80% of our church, of the people in our church, were taking time out of their day every day to spend with God and to be before Him in prayer and the study of the Scriptures. And I was very proud of us that we had reached that number, that level of us who were taking seriously the charge by God himself for us to become godly people. And do you remember the series we did in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and, and the training for righteousness and godliness and how if you don't spend time with God each day, if you don't cultivate that relationship with him and in prayer, then you're going to run the risk of becoming a useless Christian. That's a strong word, isn't it? That's a strong statement, but we saw that that is exactly how Paul taught it, that that's the risk you take. And so I know you don't want to stand before God one day. You stand before Jesus and have him say to you, why did you neglect my word? God's going to hold us accountable for that and how we use our time. And I want you to think about Christians in Syria. Now, these people, I mean, you got a woman and she's got three children. Her husband's been killed in the war. Her home has been burned to the ground by Muslims and all of her belongings are burned and gone. And she's, she's striving and struggling every single day just to get some food to feed her children. Okay, that woman... She's got to pass, okay? She didn't have time to read her Bible and spend some time in prayer. Okay, I understand. But that's not us. You understand? We don't have those problems. We have no problems, really, in comparison to that, right? For the most part. We struggle. We have our challenges. But there is no such thing as I don't have time. We choose not to do it. Though that's important to you, you make time for it. So, receive my disappointment as a little bit of a 
SWAT and say, okay, Lord, I don't want to dishonor you in how I use my time and how I live my life. So help me to get back into it. Pray this prayer. Say, Lord, draw me into the scriptures. Draw me into prayer. And you keep praying that until it happens. Okay? Because only God can draw somebody to himself. Only he, right? We must be drawn by the Father, right? So pray that prayer. Ask God to draw you back in because we have something really critical going on here in our church. We're searching for a new leader. And we know that there's this principle at work in life is that you attract what you are. You don't attract what you're not. Okay? You attract what you are. And so if we're going to be a prayer-saturated, Bible-saturated church, then we're going to attract a leader who is like that. But if we're going to neglect the word and we're going to neglect prayer, then we're going to attract a leader who neglects the word and who neglects prayer. Do you want to be led by that kind of person? Do you want that kind of a... Do you want your pastor to say, oh, you know, I really didn't have any time to study this week, so this sermon I just got from the latest Star Trek episode. I hope you don't mind. You want that? No. We want a man of God who spends his time every morning with God in prayer and in diligence to the scriptures. And if you want that, then that's what you got to be. So there's a lot at stake here for us all, and I'll get down off of my high horse now, and I forgive you, I love you, let's move on, (laughs) okay? (laughs) Let's pray. You still love me? Okay, thank you. Father in heaven, um, what what an amazing privilege it is to, to stand up here today and share from the Gospel of Matthew, what an amazing book it is and what phenomenal truth it is. And I so desperately don't want to disappoint you, Lord. I want you to be pleased with me and my life and, and what I'm going to share. So help me to deliver the truth and in the way that you want it to be shared And that it would cause faith to grow in our hearts. That we become drawn to you and to trust you with our lives because of your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're starting a new series. As Andrew said, the series is called Follow. And it's from the book of Matthew. So we're going to go on an exciting journey together. From now until the end of the year, we're going to be into the book of Matthew. And we're going to be learning from Jesus. It's almost like we'll be literally sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from him what it means to be a disciple. How do you be a how do you be disciple? What, what is required? What does that look like? What is the kingdom of God? What does it look like? And we'll learn all that from Jesus through the eyes of Matthew as he recorded it in his gospel. So let's start with a little bit of 
background, not a whole lot of background on the book today, but a little bit about the time in which this was written. This was written during the world domination by Rome, okay, modern-day Italy. Rome had conquered the modern world, or was in the midst of conquering the modern world. And this heavy world domination exacted a, a heavy cost on the nation of Rome. The empire was feeling the weight of all this conquest. It was expensive to cover the world with soldiers, and they had to pay for all of these conquests. And so they developed a system of taxation that became a system of oppression on the people of Israel, on God's people. Every conquered nation, Rome would conquer that nation and then put on them a heavy burden of taxation to pay for the army that just defeated them. <laughs> Brilliant system. There were two taxes that were taken. One was a poll tax, and that was similar to our income tax that we have today. The other was a ground tax, and the ground tax would be uh, similar to our property tax that we had. And the way this worked out was very, is very interesting to me. What happened was uh, the, the very wealthy Roman senators and magistrates would get together, they'd form a coalition, they would pool all their money together, and they would purchase the right to tax a nation. So the Roman army, would, in this case of Israel, would uh, uh, take over their territory, defeat the nation of Israel, impose a heavy tax on them, and then these coalition of wealthy senators and magistrates would buy the right to tax the nation of Israel. So Caesar would set the price. He would set what the tax is going to be. That number would be set for five years. And then people would bid and buy the rights to tax those people. And so you can see that in this kind of a system, it, it lent itself to a whole lot of corruption. Because then it was upon them to tax that group of people and get out of them as much as they possibly could. They would literally squeeze them to get more money from them than the tax to fill their pockets. And so they would, uh, these senators and magistrates, they would hire a slave of that nation. So they would find an Israelite who would then uh, work for them to collect the tax. Um, these people who collected the tax were called Publicans, not Republicans, Publicans, although they do it as well. And uh, the people who hired the Publicans to collect the tax were called the Publicani. These are the Romans, the senators and magistrates. They're the, they're the Publicani. And so you can imagine how your typical resident of Jerusalem would absolutely hate the publicans. These are the tax collectors. They were hated because they were their own countrymen and they were stealing from them. And essentially what they were doing is taking the, the tax and then a little bit more for themselves. And so they're gouging their own countrymen. They were considered traitors. Traitors of the worst kind. 
Okay, absolutely hated in society. So what ended up happening in their particular culture is that the tax collectors then gravitated into the part of the culture that was criminals. They were uh, involved in prostitution, sex slavery. It was an early form of the mafia, thugs, thieves, murderers. This is the type of group that the tax collectors associated with. And you see that all throughout Matthew's gospel as the Pharisees heap upon Jesus this judgment that you hang out with tax collectors and sinners and murderers. So tax collectors were like this. If you want to learn about that, you can find it in Luke chapter 19 of a guy named Zacchaeus who was one of these despised tax collectors And you read about Jesus' interactions with Zacchaeus, Luke 19. So these tax collectors, the publicans, were on the criminal side of society. All right? Now, one of these tax collectors who had been hired by the wealthy Roman senators and magistrates to collect taxes from Israel was a man by the name of Matthew. Or Levi. And to see where Matthew ends up in the uh, chronology of the life of Jesus, we find that in Matthew chapter 9. You can turn there quickly and we'll just read it briefly. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, now we know that what Matthew, the way Matthew wrote his gospel, he never referred to himself. Okay, He's a very humble man. Uh, Jesus did a tremendous transformation in his life. And uh, so uh, this story of this meeting in a house and having a party, that's Matthew's house. Okay, So Matthew has... Uh, invited all his buddies over for a party with Jesus. Verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, go and learn what that means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. I love this because this is Jesus using sarcasm. He's sarcastically saying to these Pharisees, obviously you guys don't have a clue, you know what you're talking about. You go off and learn what this means. We know what it means. And uh, you are righteous. Ha, <laughs> right. Uh, I'll hang out with these sinners while you righteous go and learn what I'm talking about. I love it. Don't let your teenager know that Jesus used sarcasm, though. You'll be in trouble. First of all, It's absolutely shocking and amazing that Jesus would call a tax collector to be a disciple. 
let alone the kind of people that Matthew ran with. Here he is being called by our Savior to be an apostle. Now, these are not, you know, let this sink in a little bit. These are not loser criminals that just are, you know, stealing this, a few things on the weekend. This is organized crime. These are professional criminals. These are very dangerous people. If they wanted, if you couldn't pay the tax, they could have you thrown in jail and or killed. These are the kind of people that if they don't like you, you disappear into the Nevada desert. If you know what I mean. And Jesus walks up to this guy and he says, follow me. Only the Son of God could work that kind of transformation. Only God. Matthew's gospel presents Jesus as king, and this is important to understand. If we're going to understand his genealogy, we need to know why Matthew is doing this. Raise your hand if you've heard a sermon before on the genealogy of Jesus. Okay, I'd say that's about 5%, maybe. Okay, most of you haven't. So now when you go to work, you can say, hey, everybody, I know what the genealogy means in the Bible. <laughs> They'll be super impressed. Matthew presents Jesus as king. The person of Jesus is painted in royal colors by Matthew. His ancestry is traced from his royal line. His birth is uh, dreaded by a rival king. Kingmakers bring royal gifts to his birth. John the Baptist declared that his kingdom is at hand. So Matthew begins with the task of making the claim that Jesus has a legitimate right to be king. Now, that's the difficult thing to do in his day and in our day. Very difficult. Matthew's trying to say that Jesus is descended from King David. He's from the kingly line of David, of Israel, and that he's not just the king on the rightful king of David's throne, but the king of kings and the throne of the whole world. <clears throat> and how do you establish something like that? What do you think the British police would do? If they got a call one day and the queen says, there's somebody out in front here at Buckingham Palace who claims to be the rightful king of England. What would happen to that guy? He would go to jail and they would think he was insane. So how is it that Jesus is walking around claiming to be the son of God or king on David's throne, how is Matthew going to establish that? I mean, when they did start talking about it, people said things like, we know who you are. You're the son of Joseph. You're, the, you're Mary. We know your parents. We know your brothers and sisters. You, we know where you come from. You come from Nazareth. You're no king of David. So how does Matthew establish that Jesus is the rightful king. 
especially if you're going to claim that, you had better have some proof. You need proof. The prophet Nathan, Old Testament, Nathan prophesied that the Messiah would come through the royal line of King David, the Messiah who would come and take Israel and bring her together to himself as one nation again. 2 Samuel 7 and verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So, the king, the Messiah, had to come through the royal line of King David. So let's go into the genealogy here in verse 1 and see what we can pull out of this. If anybody snickers or laughs at how I pronounce these words, I'm going to ask you to come up and do it. I'm just kidding. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Jeriah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and these names will be on the quiz. (laughs) Not really. David was the father of Solomon, the wife of Uriah. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, Asaph the father of Josephat, Josephat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers in the time of the deportion to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shatiel, and Shatiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Ekleam, Ekleam the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. <gasps> So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Have you ever read something like this in the Bible and you asked yourself, what is with all these names? Because this is in other places of the Bible. There are actually 50 different genealogies in the Bible. What's with all the names? <laughs> what's that supposed to be? What's the, what's the purpose for that? This is the word of God. Why are we wasting time on all these repetitive lists of names? Well, let me explain. When God established, established Israel as a nation... He took them out of the captivity of Egypt. 
brought them into the promised land through Joshua. Moses stayed. He wasn't allowed to go in. Joshua took the nation in. And in Joshua 14, you can read the detail of how God determined which tribe got which piece of land. So the, the, the land was divided up geographically by tribes. So the tribe of Benjamin got this one, and then the, the tribe of Nathan got this one, and so on and so forth. All the different sons and tribes had their own location, with the exception of the Levites. The Levites didn't get any land. They were set in different cities throughout the whole thing, but they, the whole, all the other tribes then collected a tithe, and it was paid to the Levites to support their homes and their life and their children, and they were the priests of the nation. So it actually became a very lucrative um, you know, get-rich-quick type of a deal for the Levites because they were able to have, uh, collect all this money and then have excess, and they kept it for themselves, which became a problem later. They ended up being the Pharisees and Sadducees and all of that big mess and that problem. But anyway, uh, God had divided all this up geographically and by tribes. So every family had to have a very detailed pedigree that proved who their fathers were and where they came from so they had right to that particular land. If you didn't have a pedigree, you couldn't prove that you owned that land, that it was yours, and so, you know, you were in big trouble. So it was very, very important, and meticulous records were kept. All right, let me give you a few of of examples of this and to why it is important. If you were going to sell land... Let's say, you know, God has given you this piece of land, and then for some reason you decide to sell it. Well, you had to be able to prove that you had the right to sell it to begin with because some huckster could come along and say, hey, I'm selling you this land, and it actually belongs to somebody else. So you couldn't sell or buy land unless you had a written pedigree to prove that you owned it. Now, this is all detailed in Ruth 3 and 4. They also had a thing called the year of Jubilee. In the year of Jubilee, the seventh year, all debts would be released. So if you, if you owed somebody uh, three cows and four sheep and you couldn't pay, they would take as collateral your land. And so they had the right then to farm your land or to use your land or something like that. And then at the end of that seven year, everything was returned back to its original owner. Well, you wouldn't know who that was unless you had a written pedigree or genealogy of who owned that and when and whose father and so on and so forth. So it became very important for that. In Ezra 2, in verse 62 the nation of Israel is returning back from their captivity in Babylon. And so some, uh, some guys thought, oh, this is, this is our opportunity now. We're going back to establish the nation of Israel. So let's say we're, we're of the tribe of Levi, so we can be a part of the priesthood and we'll be rich. And so they come up there, they come to Ezra, and they say, we're a part of the Levites. And Ezra says, okay, great. Show me your pedigree. And they didn't have one, and so he said, out you go. Uh, Here it's written. 
These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. Ezra 2. You had to be able to prove by pedigree who you were. At the beginning of Luke's gospel, we read about Mary and Joseph having to travel to Jerusalem to do what? Register their pedigree, prove who they were at the time of the count. So they were still using that system at the time of Christ, proving and having of pedigrees and genealogies. So we even see Paul in the New Testament. Paul, Romans 11.1, 1, Paul is using his pedigree to establish who he is. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For my, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Now let me show you something Amazing. All right? Amazing. This is blow you away. This, you ready? I don't know if you're ready. This is so cool. All right? No Jew living today has a pedigree. None. No Jew today, living today, could show anyone who they are or where they descended from. The whole practice of having a pedigree or a genealogy has vanished, gone, poof, doesn't exist. Now, well, does that make you curious to know why? Why did it stop all of a sudden? Where did it go? When did it go? Why has it vanished? Well, Remember that Matthew is establishing that Jesus is the rightful Messiah based on his official pedigree. That Jesus is the only one who has a legitimate right to the throne of David. And because, catch this, catch this, ready? Because Jesus is the only true Messiah and the only one to make a legitimate claim to the throne, all others after him can no longer make that claim because pedigrees disappeared after Jesus. It's almost like God wiped them out. Why? Because Jesus is the true Messiah. Anybody that now comes along and says, I'm the Messiah, I come from the line of David, all we have to do is say, prove it. And they won't be able to because the only, the final, last, verifiable, written pedigree is the one that Matthew wrote in the book of Matthew. That's cool. That's pretty cool. Now, I'm out of time. I can't go into every single name on this genealogy. We'd be here all day. So let me just say a few things. And I'll hurry. Matthew's genealogy is a descending genealogy. It's a descending record. 
Uh, Luke has a genealogy of Jesus, and his is an ascending record. So it's the opposite, okay? Luke starts from Jesus and moves backwards. Matthew starts with Abraham and moves forward to Jesus. And so Matthew is showing the legal descent of Jesus as king, and Luke is showing the lineal descent. So you say, well, who cares? What's the big deal? What's the difference? Well, Matthew is showing us the royal line. As I told you, he's establishing that Jesus is king. So Matthew is showing the royal line, while Luke is showing the bloodline. The royal line always came through the Father. But here's a problem. Jesus had no human father. You ever wondered why, whenever it comes to to, uh, saying who Jesus' father is or mentioning his father, Joseph, there's always a qualifier? There's always some qualifier. You'll see it there in whatever, whatever version you have of the Bible. You'll see it. They'll say something about Joseph. <clears throat> so for Jesus to have a legitimate claim to the throne, not having it from his father, Joseph, he had to have it from his mother's line. And so he does through Mary. You see, David had several sons. Solomon was his son through Bathsheba, and that is where Joseph's line follows. Okay, But David had a son named Nathan, and through Nathan, Mary's line follows. And so in both counts, in legal line and in bloodline, Jesus is of the seed of David. Verse 16 of the genealogy is interesting. It says, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born and who was called Christ. When I first read this, I thought, what's up with Joseph, man? Is he some kind of wimp or something? Nobody comes right out and says Joseph. They always say he's the the husband of Mary. But there is an important reason why that is done. Joseph is the legal father of, uh, Joseph is the legal father of, Jesus, okay, Joseph was his legal father, okay, not his paternal father, you follow, Joseph is his legal father, sort of like adoption, legally Jesus was his son, but he was not a paternal father because Jesus was conceived through the Holy Spirit, so His paternal father was God himself, God the Father. So Jesus always refers to his father as God the Father, never Joseph. So why is it so important to establish that Joseph was not his paternal father? What's the big deal? He's his legal father. He adopted him. So what? Why can't we go with that? We can't because of verse 11. Verse 11 in the genealogy says, And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. This dude named Jeconiah, you can read about him in Jeremiah 22. Jeconiah was an evil king. And so God cursed him and said, You and all of your descendants will never reign on the throne of David. God curses him. Well, Joseph is in that line. So that means that 
If Jesus was the paternal son of Joseph, he could never sit on the throne of David because God had cursed Jeconiah. So what does God do? How does he go around that? He has the Holy Spirit conceive Jesus inside of Mary, bypassing Joseph, therefore avoiding the curse. So God establishes his will through the virgin birth. You know, there are two things about this genealogy that just really blessed my soul. I mean, I just, I, I just, I cried and I felt such joy as I read it and as I studied it and looked into it because what stood out to me was the people that he chose. You look and you look at this group of people. These are people that God chose. Jesus chose these people before the foundations of the earth to be in his line. They were chosen by him. That makes a difference. It's not just random. You can see in this, in this genealogy how God meticulously worked in all of the whole process. So these people were chosen and the choosing baffles me. Take, for example, there are five women in this genealogy. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Now, Mary, we know a lot about Mary. Mary was pretty awesome. The other four, not so much. Tamar deceived her father-in-law by dressing up as a prostitute, having sex with him, which was committing incest. You could read the whole story in Genesis 38. Rahab was a professional prostitute. She was a Canaanite prostitute. Joshua 2 tells her story. You, 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 you getting this? I mean, she was a prostitute. Okay, she wasn't just some bad lady or just got a moral problem. There's a whole nother level here. Ruth, Ruth, the story of Ruth is a phenomenal story. But Ruth was a Moabite. She was a Gentile. She wasn't a Jew. And in fact, her nation was so wicked, God cursed the entire nation of Moab and Deuteronomy 23. And they all be wiped out because of their wickedness. And these are her descendants. And then Bathsheba. Now Bathsheba kind of falls in the, in the gray area, I think she does. Because Bathsheba, Bathsheba had an affair with King David while her husband was off in war. But David was king, so she had to obey what he said or he could kill her. So in one, on one hand, David raped her, or on the other hand, if she was complicit, it was some sort of adultery. But either way, we don't know really what was in her heart. Only God knows. But either way, it was a messy situation, terrible, tragic situation. The whole thing is detailed in 2 Samuel 11. But that's not all. Jesus chose Matthew. He chose Matthew, a tax collector, a traitor of Israel, a criminal, to be one of his disciples. Anyone, and I mean 
anyone who ever saw a tax collector saw a traitor, criminal, sinner. But Jesus looked at Matthew. He saw an apostle. An apostle that would be selected into a small, very small group of men. In all the millions of men in the universe, these 13 had a very, very special relationship with God. You know, this week I saw a woman, met her. She had meth mouth. So most of her teeth were rotted out or black in the process of rotting or missing. I'm guessing she was about 25 years old, but she looked 50. She was super, super skinny from all the drugs. Almost had a gaunt look to her face. Clothes were dirty. She stunk She probably didn't own anything of value because she sold everything to get high. And I'm ashamed of it now. I wasn't at the time. I looked at her with disgust. But Jesus looks at her and says, I love her. You don't want her, John. You throw her out like garbage. No value. But Jesus says, I'll take her. I see value in her. I see in her a future disciple. You see, Jesus is a different king. He chooses men and women on the basis of grace and mercy, not like we do. I so love that about Jesus. My other point is this. God orchestrated the details of hundreds of people over thousands of years to perfectly bring about his plan for Jesus. Perfect. And so if God can work so perfectly and providentially in the life of Jesus, then he can also do that in mine and yours. See, God is working in your life in 10,000 different ways that you don't see, that you don't know, that affect your children and your grandchildren and even farther down. But God's working it all together in his perfect plan to work out his grace and mercy in your life. And can't you see that in this genealogy? Can't you see that? Does it cause you to say, I can trust you, God. I trust you with my life. Because if you can work that out for Jesus, I know you can work out the details of my life. You can trust him with the details of your life. Let's pray.
Father, thank you again for your word, which is so refreshing and wonderful. Your word cuts like a double-edged sword. It reveals our wickedness in our hearts. It shows us for what we are and at the same time washes us clean of our filth and leads us into righteousness, your righteousness. So Lord, I pray that there would be many here today that would leave with new faith that you both chose them and that you love them and that they can trust you. 